0: Thank you so much to everyone for joining. And um, we are now going to call this meeting to order for the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee. It is September 28th, uh, 2023, um, and we will start with roll call. Laura, if you would please. Or Ivy, apologies.
1: Hey, Member Catalano, absent. Member Cunningham-Denning, present. Uh, Member Vice Chair D'Antonio? Yes. Present. Member Friedenbach? Present. Member Preston? Present. Member Walton? Absent. Um, Chair Williams?
0: Present. All right, so we do have quorum and we're now gonna move to our um, Ramatushalone land acknowledgement. So we acknowledge that we're on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushalone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushalone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in the traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland, and we wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatouche community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Uh, so now I believe we need to move into the vote to excuse current and future absences. Um, Laura, if you have any guidance around this, are we gonna? Um, you've already excused the current ones, okay.
2: so it's just if anyone needs to flag a
0: future one. Okay, is there any future or absences that need to be? Okay, thank you so much. All okay, right, so we'll move to item number two, item number two which is um, public comment on any matters um, within our jurisdiction that are not on the agenda. So I'll turn it over to you, Ivy.
1: Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item over the phone should call 415-655-0001. Access code 2664-256-8461, and then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? For the records, there are no phone public comments.
0: All right, thank you so much. So now we'll move to item three, which is approval of minutes from August 24th. 2023 is there a motion
3: motion to approve the minutes
0: so moved by vice chair DeAntonio. is there a second so. I second okay. all right a second um, second by member Cunningham Denning all right so we'll move Is there any public comment for um, approval of minutes
1: members of the public comment who'd wish to provide in-person public comment on this item please line up at the podium now each person will have two minutes to speak For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item over the phone should call 415-655-0001, access code 2664-234-0097, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you'll have two minutes to speak. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? For the records, there are no phone public comments.
0: Thank you so much. So We'll now take a roll for a vote.
1: Member Cunningham-Denning? Yes. Vice Chair DeAntonio. Yes. Member Friedenbach? Yes. Member Preston? Yes. Chair Williams? Yes.
0: So the motion passes. So the minutes are approved. We'll now move to item number four, our presentations from local providers uh, serving subpopulations. We're very excited about this item and thank you everyone for joining. Um, We first have a presentation by Joy Jackson from Third Street Youth Clinic Center and Clinic. Welcome, Director Jackson. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, Joy Jackson Morgan, um, representing Third Street Youth Center and Clinic. This is a proud moment because I get to pass the mic to our housing leadership team. So coming to the podium is Verna Pesadas, our Director of Housing, and Adriana Embreeze um, from our, our Program Director at the Tate Navigation Center. Welcome.
4: How do I um, put the presentation on?
5: If you can open it um,
4: and then we'll. Uh... Oh, there it goes. All right. Thank you for allowing us to present today. My name is Burnham Posadas, Director of Housing for Third Street Youth Center and Clinic.
6: My name is Adriana Embriz and I'm the Residential Director for the Lower Poke Navigation Center.
4: All right, so today we wanted just to go over a couple of our programs, but also provide just some housing data in general with our housing programs that we have. Our median age is about 22 years old that we serve on a daily basis. 58% of our youth identify as black and African American. 76% of the youth state that they use substances, alcohol or drugs. 77.5% of the youth state that they have mental health. Um, Regarding our assessments, we are a youth access point as well. And so 61% of our assessments identify as female. Uh, 73% identify as black and African American. Um, With that, we wanted to give a quick overview of who we are, what we do. So our goal, obviously, is to end youth homelessness primarily in the Bayview, Hunters Point neighborhood and the surrounding areas of San Francisco since we have multiple locations across San Francisco. The youth that we do serve are around 18 to 27 years old, primarily everywhere, right? We have the Lower Polk Tain Navigation Center as well in the middle of the Tenderloin, Lower Polk North as well. Um, we focus on serving our black youth and also our BIPOC community. We serve about 168 clients on a daily with all of our housing programs collectively. Uh, since January 1st, 2020 through September 27th, which was yesterday, we had served a total of 1,613 youth and completed 868 assessments. This was also because we were open during the pandemic and gave still services to the youth that needed them, connected them to housing resources as well. Our youth access points serve primarily 18 to 24 year olds. We provide problem solving housing navigations, rapid rehousing referrals, permanent supportive housing referrals, emergency housing voucher referrals and transitional housing referrals as well. We have about five locations where all of our youth access points case managers provide services. So being our main location which is in Bayview Hunters Point on Third Street and is our newly open Cove office. Feel free to come down, take a look. We're super excited about it. It's a considered kind of like a drop-in center where we have washer and dryer services, showers, um, we provide food if they need it immediately, things like that. Um, and also we partner with the SECC office, so we have a location there as well. Um, We have our Hyde Street, 700 Hyde Street, which is the Lower Polk Tay navigation center, and then we also partner with SF State as well. So we try to provide more accessibility in San Francisco considering the resources that we do have available to the youth, we wanna make sure we're outreaching as much as possible. Our youth access points data, Um, Being that we had served 868 youth, 524 identified as female, 323 identified as male, 9 identified as transgender, 8 identified as no single gender, 629 identified as black and African American, 376 stated that they had mental health, 233 stated that they had alcohol or drug abuse, um, 296 stated that they had experienced domestic violence. <clears throat> Moving forward, we wanted to kind of talk about the programs that we had in connection with our youth access points and what's available to our organization to be able to provide matches to the youth that we serve. One of our programs being Home Point, as we call it at Third Street, is a rapid rehousing program that it has an extended period of time allowing the youth to really work on sustaining their permanent housing, maintaining permanent housing, and being able to not return into the homelessness response system. With this program specifically, it was designed with the help of youth, so we had a youth focus group, tell us what they wanted, right? Let's hear from you, what do you need? What's a good amount of time for Rapid Rehousing for you to be successful in our programs? Alongside with having intensive case management, they also get the full year, first year, subsidized 100%, allowing them to really focus on their employment needs, their education goals, um, build up a savings, working with like their case manager and building up a budget. And so that way they can have a savings after the first year is completed. It's truly a housing-first model, which has been... Ex- exceptionally successful with the youth that we've had. It's a smaller program, it has eight slots, Um, so it's very minimal. We hope to grow this program. With this, we have served 21 youth, 19 identified as black or African American, seven identified as male, 14 identified as female, three identified as being part of the LGBTQ community, and 90% have successfully completed the program, whether that's their housing or moving on to a different program that was able to also successfully transition their current housing into the new program, such as like EHV, some of them also transitioned into permanent supportive housing, noticing that they needed more support with their mental health and their capability of securing their housing and not returning back to the homelessness response system. Another program that we have is our Rising Up Rapid Rehousing program. Um, A lot more familiar in the community, a lot more partners that we collaborate with, such as Brilliant Corners, Larkin Street, and so forth. Um, The moving costs are provided as well, but it's also a tiered subsidy. The best thing about this program, it allows the clients to also cash out and create a savings if they're doing what they need to do, such as paying their rent three consecutive months, or being employed for four months at a time and holding consistent employment. So we wanna reward those things for them. Um, This also has a case management with them. They meet with clients on a weekly basis. On support with Brilliant Corners, we support with the housing navigation and landlord mitigation and advocating for the clients with any issues that arise with their partners. Our rapid rehousing data has served so far 93 youth collectively, 39 identified as female, 49 identified as male, two identified as transgender, 70 identified as black or African American. 29 stated that they had mental health, 18 identified as being part of the LGBTQ plus community, and 24 of our youth identified as former foster youth. Additionally, we also had our emergency housing voucher program. We have one slide with all of the data. Um, we provide case management up to two years consistently from being unhoused and housed. Uh, we provide housing navigation, client and landlord mitigation and advocacy. We're available 24-7, just in case anything arises where they need help in communicating with their landlords of what their needs are. Uh, barrier removal, financial assistance, such as moving costs, furniture, child care, transportation, anything that might be a barrier to them being successful while retaining their housing. Um, currently, at this time, there are no more slots available but we have served 62 youth and matched as well internally with our um, coordinated entry and 34 so far have been housed and as of yesterday, five RTAs were submitted to the Housing Authority. So our numbers will increase. We expect them to continue to be housed. Oh. Lastly, we have our SFSU, Rapid Rehousing. We partner with Lyric and the Chancellor's Office to be able to provide housing resources to the students at San Francisco State also connecting them to coordinating entry. Um, our program consists of case management up to 12 months, housing location, landlord incentives, barrier removal, financial assistance, and we provide about 8,000 per use. Um, we are currently working on our data. We are transferring from paper files to digital files, so hopefully next time that we're here presenting to you all we'll have more clear-cut data. I will now pass it on to Adriana, Thank you, Verna. So I get the privilege to introduce
6: to you guys today the Lower Polk Tain Navigation Center. Um, the Lower Pogue Navigation Center is a safe place to youth who are 18 to 27 years old. Um, we do have 75 code bed, um, co-ed beds. It is a congregate living environment. Um, the clients do have to be self, self-sufficient in order to be there. Um, what we offer, we offer housing, um, our youth have a safe and clean place to be comfortable. If they have secure lockers, they have their own personal um, space. We do welcome their service animals, or companion animals, or personal animals, so they are welcome to be there with their pets. Um, we do offer the youth meals. Um, they are offered three meals a day, but for the most, we kinda keep our um, cafeteria open 24 hours so the youth are able to get snacks, food, whenever they kinda feel um, that they would like some. We do provide health and wellness services, um, so we do actually have a therapist on site at all times um, who are on call as well. So we are blessed to have that. It's relatively new, so we are, um, you know, very blessed to have that on site with us. Our education, we support the youth with, uh, to continue their education. Their employment, we definitely encourage the youth with their employment. Um, we have services there like Rams, who is there every Tuesdays and Thursdays to provide. Um, services for their employment. Um, our data, uh, so we have served 631 youth. Our average stay is 73 days. Um, the average age of our youth there is 22. Uh, 273 identified as black African-American. Um, 188 identified as female. 392 identified as males. 24 identified as transgender. 196 stated they have mental health and 156 stated that they have used alcohol or drugs.
4: Thank you. (laughs) I'm back. Um, And so after discussing the programs that we have available to us internally at Third Street, we also wanted to be able to discuss what we and our clients need. It's the same need for all of us, right? Because we want to be able to support them with the things that they need and be an advocate for them on their behalf. So first things that come to mind, obviously the list could go on, but we wanted to focus on low barrier and flexible spending contracts, increasing of staffing. You saw the programs that we had and we are operating with eight staff. And considering our data, I think we're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. Increase of staff means more outreach, more connections, more collaboration with external partners. Um, Additional TAI navigation centers, as we operate when we see the need. Sometimes we're completely full and can no longer accept referrals for weeks on an ongoing basis. And so to turn away referrals from other partners, it's like, where are they gonna go? What services are they gonna have, right? More housing options for matching. As a youth access point, we're limited to referring to slots that are allocated to us and the programs that we have internally. We're a smaller upcoming organization and we see the need for this extremely for our youth that come to us. We don't have enough matches to match the number of assessments that come in on a daily basis. So with that, we have a waiting list for clients to be matched, (coughs) excuse me. All low barrier applications and access to treatment and detox centers, more transitional housing, permanent supportive housing units. When I say low barrier applications, Have you guys seen the applications for a PSH? It's 30 pages long. Client has already done a lengthy assessment, has disclosed things about their lives that are triggering, right? In order to be matched, to get a higher score, and then once they're able to get into a PSH queue, they have to do everything all over again for these applications. Getting and obtaining disability forms, Right, Some of our youth get discouraged at how long these applications are. Maybe it's the literacy, maybe it's just the financial literacy of the rent, the move-in costs and things like this. Another issue that we've seen with our PSH is also being unable to double dip with certain programs that we have, being that clients have to provide their move-in deposits solely on their own, due to contract limits and contractual guidelines. Um, Increasing the length of time in rapid rehousing programs, majority of rapid rehousing across the state are limited to 12 months plus six months or 12 months extension depending on the county, the state, things like that, and city ordinances. 12 months on a shared subsidy with a youth with extreme mental health is harder for them to also sustain employment with a time limited program in the back of their mind knowing that they have to make this work because their subsidy will end shortly. Increased limits on financial assistance. As I should mention, some of our programs are limited to 8,000 a month. Problem solving is limited to 8,000 a month, including furniture assistance, gift cards for groceries, anything like that, including their moving costs. Altogether, we're in the Bay Area. Fair market rate is about 2,000, 2,200 for our max limits for rising up per youth, with double security deposits due to bad credit, right? Without that financial literacy at an early age, it's a disservice to them and limiting the financial assistance for them to be able to work on other things and be a housing first model completely in San Francisco. So we're asking that these are looked at and also that they're able to receive the other assistance that are built into these contracts, making it fair and equitable for everyone. Post exit case management and follow up surveys Systems. I think this is something that as a whole we need to work on and really gather data on how many youth are actually returning into the homelessness response, especially with these short-term subsidy programs, coming back to access points and how many assessments they are completing within a couple years, right? That data still is somewhere unobtainable. I have worked with the one system in BIPOCUS to try to see if that's something that we're able to retain. Unfortunately, it's not. But if we had a system to follow up with these youth at 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, and see what has worked, what programs they were in, gathering that data would be able to measure how we measure success. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much for that presentation. ALL RIGHT, SO WE'RE NOW GOING TO, I BELIEVE WE'RE GOING TO OPEN IT UP FOR PUBLIC COMMENT, OR NOT RIGHT NOW, SORRY. BUT WE'LL GO BACK TO THE COMMITTEE, ACTUALLY, um, FOR DISCUSSION. Um, THE the OTHER TWO uh,
1: PRESENTATIONS. OH,
0: OKAY. BACK TO BACK. ALL RIGHT, SO WE ACTUALLY HAVE BEVERLY Upton um, FROM THE SAME DOMESTIC VIOLENCE CONSORTIUM. WELCOME, BEVERLY. HI.
7: Good morning, Chair Williams. I'm joined today by Orchid Pusey, who's the executive director of one of our brilliant agencies, Asian Women's Shelter. So I'm so honored to be here today and honored to stand with Orchid, as always. Okay, Trying to find our our PowerPoints on your computer here. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, that's you. Somebody else's. Sorry, we're working on it. We we came in and loaded it this morning. Oh, very good. Thank you.
3: Can we ask a question from the last presentation while we're doing this?
0: Of course. Sure. Um, I guess you want to go for it.
3: Yeah, I just was curious about you mentioned um, referrals. I'm just wondering if you could tell us where um, a lot of your referrals come from for, the lower the for both for everything
7: no it's right here
0: we so for, loaded it this morning do you want to come up to the microphone? microphone?
3: and I don't want to take the next people's time but you guys are ready Sorry.
1: Um, for okay. <laughs>
4: Um, For our referrals for the Lower Poke navigation, it's managed by the HSH guest placement, so it comes from all of our community providers. So anybody who does have an access point in San Francisco is able to make a referral to us, including more partners like DPH, um, HRTC, Felton Institute, things like that, who are not also access points, so they also get a chance to refer to us. Um, For our youth access points, a lot of them are walk-in and word of mouth, Um, Sometimes we get referrals from other partners that are not a youth access point and asking us to do their assessments and work with them. So we work in silo with them in collaboration for like, you know, in case a client has already built a rapport with a specific agency. Um, But most of our referrals are community-based organizations.
8: If I may ask one more question. I know that you said in your presentation that one of the um, organizations that you partner with is Lyric Street or Lyric Youth Street Services, is that correct? Are there any other um, organizations that you work with in the Bay Area or in San Francisco that are youth serving or like transitional age youth serving um, also LGBTQIA um, serving as well? Because I did see um, in your presentation that there are... First off, your efforts are amazing. I love your program. It seems um, like wonderful. But um, I do see or I did see that there was um like a lower um amount of participants that identify with the LGBTQIA community, um, do you, like? I guess where my question was because I know Lyric, Youth Services, that's one of their programs that they do operate, do they refer individuals over to your agency or is there like a barrier in regards to those, that particular demographic receiving or coming to your, your um, agency to receive service?
4: So for our lower protein navigation, we have seen an increase lately this year with referrals from the SF LGBTQ Center. Um, So we do partner with them. We have also asked for additional trainings to help support our staff and supporting the clients as well. It is something that we know is coming and is apparent that the services are needed for these young youth that are being more vocal about the support that they need. Um, And so right now our referrals are primarily through them and Dimensions, thank you. Um, we are also partnering with Dimensions to have on-site therapy at our lower poke Tay Navigation Center, specifically for our LGBTQ plus community.
8: If I may also, after the, this meeting, if I could provide my information for the organization that I work for in my day job. <laughs> the yeah. Taja Coalition, because these are the simul- there's very similar programming that we offer um, for that particular demographic of youth definitely love to get more information maybe collaborate
4: yes Um, of course i would love that thank you thank you
0: thank you so much (laughs) all right Beverly.
4: well we made a partnership
0: here how wonderful hey great
7: (laughs) we want to thank everybody who helped us get up and ready this morning and we want to thank Again, uh, Chair Williams and all of our commissioners and friends, thank you so much. I'm Beverly Upton. I've been the Executive Director of the San Francisco Domestic Violence Consortium for, I just started my 23rd year today. Or, wait, thank you. Uh, it's an honor every day, every day, every day to stand with people like Orchid to help survivors, to work on public policy and budget, uh, systems change, uh, and uh, community building. And that could be the LBGT community, it could be the Native American community, it could be that Black and African American community. So we are honored. I'm only one person, I do the best I can. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Great. <laughs> <Good. laughs> <Right. laughs> we represent um, 17 members almost all direct service providers here in San Francisco doing the bulk of the domestic violence work in San Francisco We are part of right now the gender-based violence portfolio through DOSW and other agencies other departments as well, but that's our has been our home for many years so We really, I really see our agencies, our members in um, four distinct areas. Certainly the jewel in the crown is um, uh, our shelter-based programs. Uh, But so many people in San Francisco, either there's not room for them or they're trying to navigate staying in their homes, staying safe and receiving services. So most San Franciscans are in non-residential Programs. We'll talk about uh, homeless survivors of domestic violence in just a moment. Our agencies I really see as shelter and non-residential. You'll see from ORCID's work today that our shelters are much more than just domestic violence shelters. They offer a wide array of services. So San Francisco has a 24-hour domestic violence crisis line funded by the city. All the agencies have their own crisis lines during the day and they forward to one centralized location at the end of the day. Uh, So we are pretty efficient. Uh, Then I think we can look at legal services. Uh, So for the domestic violence community, that's uh, restraining orders, that's um, child custody, immigration, eviction prevention, and those four are really uh, Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach, the Bar Associations, Justice and Diversity Center, uh, the Cooperative Restraining Order Clinic, which I'm sure all of us have worked with at one time or another, and, and Bay Area Legal Aid, Bay Area Legal Aid is wonderful because they have an office in almost every Bay Area county and so we can help folks that like so many of us are living in other places, have issues that happen in other places and may indeed be going to court here. So it's. We have a wide array of services. Then I like to talk about the beloved community, and that is the Kuavs of the world, the lyrics of the world, uh, where you might walk by that office a thousand times and not know that domestic violence is one of their key components. But the community knows, because they speak their language, they understand their cultural issues, and they're trusted. Right, so that's Kuav, that's Lyric, that's Cameron House in Chinatown. It's so many programs that belong to the Domestic Violence Consortium, why? Because the community trusts them. They are our beloved community. We have 17 members, I didn't mention them all today, but you'll be able to see who they all are. So the three shelters in San Francisco, Asian Women's Shelter, La Casa de las Madres, the first uh, shelter on the West Coast, and the Riley Center. And it is under the St. Vincent de Paul umbrella. We also, I see the beauty of some of our faith-based organizations glide Cameron House, Shalom Bayit, working to end domestic violence in the Jewish community, and a couple of other ones. We're trying to work with the Interfaith Council to make sure that we are speaking from the pulpit in San Francisco, that we are connecting with congregants, that we are also offering services where so many people come for their support. So we have that too. There's a big potential there. We haven't lived up to it yet, but we will. So when we look at self-identified women and homelessness in San Francisco, and I have to say I'm going to share that I borrowed this from some of our sisters at the Women's Housing Coalition. We're one of the founding supporting members. um, And they just presented last night at the Commission on the Status of Women. 38% of San Francisco's unhoused population are self-identified women. Are we seeing 38% of them on the street? No, we're not. It's, it's a hidden epidemic, just like domestic violence. So 38% is approximately 3,000, and that's a snapshot of any given day. It's not an annual number. So you have people coming in and out of this data all the time. We have more women coming in to homelessness all the time, right? 80% of those 3,000 say that they are escaping violence and abuse. So while we've been saying to the city for my 23 years that domestic violence is a leading cause of homelessness for women and children, now we have more and more data from our sisters that are doing this work with homeless women telling us this is absolutely the truth. But if you look at 80% say that they're escaping domestic violence or violence and abuse, 38% of San Francisco's unhoused are self-identified women. 5% of the resources and beds are earmarked for women. So, yes, other women are in other congregant shelters and we're glad that those resources are there, but when we're talking about this subpopulation, very few resources are allocated to them. I will just, as an aside, (laughs) say that San Francisco has 35 programs doing domestic violence and gender-based violence work for $10 million. That's 24 hours a day. It's 20,000 survivors a year. It is tremendous to be doing this kind of work for as long as we've all been doing it on basically a static budget that is threatened every year with also looking for a new home. So we have our challenges. We appreciate your support as we move forward. So I'll just touch the ACLU. People are always interested in data from uh, national organizations. This is really more narrative, but again, this is really talking from the ACLU's point of view about women's rights and survivor of domestic violence's rights, um, that they are um, victims of eviction, they, are vic- uh, they end up homelessness in homelessness much earlier because of the violence uh, and intimidation that's going on, and landlords, can intimidate and even though it's against the law in San Francisco, we've worked on legislation for a long time, it still happens. We know predatory uh, landlords that want to get um, survivors of domestic violence and their children out of their units so they can raise the rents and so they do. Uh, We hear about it all the time. So we appreciated the ACLU um, and their, um, their lens on this. So, I'm gonna turn it over to uh, ORCID in just a minute, uh, but I will say what can be done, we're kind of representing the DV community today, but what can be done? I would say train, 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 train. We are not in general as a city um, screening enough to know people's experience, and they may not tell us, so again, that's where people like our friends that are here today that come from these communities that are young, that know the questions to ask, that's how you find out about people's real experience, right? So the more community that can be working in these programs, the better off we all are, the better off survivors are. We want to train the city how to screen for domestic violence, sexual assault, and all gender-based violence. Support the services and the advocates. I don't know about anybody else, but I feel like I've been hanging by a thread for 23 years. So as this moves forward, maybe we can get some help in not hanging by a thread for the next 23 (laughs) years. I'd really appreciate it. Support survivors that are unhoused. It's very difficult for people to make good long-term choices when they don't know where they're going to sleep tonight, where they don't know where their next meal is coming from, where they don't know if their children are going to be safe. So to create that safety for survivors of domestic violence helps them make the kind of long-term decisions that they're going to need to make. And so we need to provide that. All of us work 24 hours a day to do it. The city is very interested. I know it's a priority, but let's help us do that. us also screen for more homelessness, right? Because not everybody tells everybody everything, right? Ensure sufficient housing for nonviolent parents and their children. When we think about that 80%, most, not all, but most of those women have children with them. Most people who go into shelter have children with them too. So let's just, you know, let's make ending domestic violence a priority. That's my piece for today. I'm gonna to stand with my colleague, uh, Orchid, and we are gonna see some real people talking about real experiences. So thank you so much.
9: Good morning. Uh, my name's Orchid, I'm the executive director of Asian Women's Shelter. Uh, we, I'm in my 22nd year, we're just a year <laughs> apart. So, I'm in my 22nd year at Asian Women's Shelter and and we thank you. And um uh I haven't started the dying yet. I'm not sure. But this is because of domestic violence. Um the whites um Asian Women's Shelter, I'm here just sort of as a case study, as an example of a program of the DVC. And we opened in 1988. We've never been closed for a single minute since 1988. Um, There's no closing, there's no holidays. Closed for two weeks in December. Give people this time off, that time off. Sorry, staff. (laughs) Um, We're just open. And when people have a crisis, they call, because one of us is holding the emergency phone by our ear at 3 in the morning. Yeah. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a video. Oops. <laughs> I'm already sharing. I know. it. So <laughs> I'm going to share a video um, that gives you some experience, actually, from the voices of survivors who have been in all of our housing programs. But just so that you have a quick sense of it, we've been doing housing is a top priority of every single person every single person that we're working with. So just about 100% of our clients are either already unhoused or they're teetering on the edge between the violence of being unhoused and the violence that they and their kids are living with wherever they're staying. So um, we have rapid rehousing programs, and I want to share these stories because because it's better for you to hear from them than from, from me and because You're going to hear from an an Afghan survivor who has a baby. You're going to hear from a Vietnamese survivor who has a kid. You're going to hear from a black woman survivor who has a teenager. And that's the reality also of the scan of who our clients are. It's everything from newborns. We started working with that Afghan family from when that baby was just born. And it's it's youth that we come in contact and work with when they're 16, and we're still working with them when they're 18, 19, 20, 21. They get to know each other. They help each other get their first job. It's a whole whole community that's very hidden, and it includes specific programming for our Arab and Muslim communities, especially in the Tenderloin communities. That our San Francisco, 44% of San Francisco speaks a language other than English in their daily life. Nothing, our service networks do not look anything like that yet. And so when they know that they actually can show up and someone can actually talk with them, that's when we have our first prayer of knowing what's actually going on. Because that barrier is so opaque, you cannot get through it. So... Arab program, queer program, queer Arab program, queer other immigrant and refugee program, all of these are doing housing in addition to the emergency shelter that's doing housing. So here I'll let you hear from them.
7: I'm going to change places with you because I'm holding
9: this down. So I'm hoping, is the sound?
1: (coughs) Let's see, let's do a test
5: cái cuộc sống của sao văn nó rất là nó nó rất, rất, rất là nó rất là đắt đỏ. Tại vì em đi làm quá nhiều cho nên là của em không có thời gian để nói chuyện với nhau. Nó nó là nếu như mà không có thông cảm được thì thôi mình đừng có nên sống chung nữa.
1: It might, be to.
5: It might also be just
1: linked to the volume on that computer, Ừ.
7: Ok. Here we go. That's going to be better. Okay.
5: <cười> 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 Cái cuộc sống của xong phương nó rất là nó 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 rất là nó rất là đắt đỏ. Tại vì em đi làm quá nhiều cho nên là tụi em không có thời gian để nói chuyện với nhau. Em mới nói là nếu như mà không có thông cảm được thì thôi mình đừng có nên sống chung nữa. Tao không có muốn, tao không có là vậy mày đâu, tao sẽ giết mày luôn ông đi xuống dưới lầu để ông hút thuốc thì trong khoảng thời gian đó là em nghĩ là khoảng thời gian này mà mình không có chạy đi khỏi cái phòng này đó thì khi mà ông quay lại thì mình có còn được sống hay không thì lúc đó là em chạy.
10: My husband became a monster. We were living in a trailer. He tried to burn the trailer down. I had a restraining order against my husband and he found out where we were. So we had to just grab whatever we could and leave immediately.
11: I was in a domestic violence relationship for a year and there was a lot of challenges like verbally, emotionally, physically abused. And I got to point that I had to leave otherwise something terrible would happen to me and my baby. I actually didn't know that I'm gonna be safe or I'm gonna have a place. I just had to do it. I didn't know if I'm going to end up in the streets.
12: The survivor who comes to our shelter, they come almost with nothing, uh, nothing except
5: themselves with their children. I didn't have any money,
10: no job, no car, nothing.
5: It too hard for me and my daughter to live at that time because we don't have any money
13: they could go back to the harm door, which happens to many who couldn't find support. They find themselves out in the street with their kids. They feel that if I have to be patient and just put up with abuse, even going back, it's not healthy for the kids. It's true they will have a house to sleep in, but is that house really a safe haven for them? Most of our clients have been with the harm doer. They were not on the lease. They have absolutely no record of renting.
12: Asian Women Shelters transitional housing is to support um, survivors of domestic violence and/or human trafficking. Um, so to be able to secure um, a housing plan, um, and after the crisis, and it's a. a little bit longer term than the emergency shelter stay and we support them to find housing and offer um, rental assistance for the period of time that they are in our program. The rent, rental help, that was that
10: was pivotal. Because I, this was the first time I've actually been on my own. Well, the way it's set up, it's it, I like the airiness of it. It's not like closed in. I'm I'm fond of coffees, different coffees, but one of my favorites though is Cafe du Monde. Oh, it's a mixture too. of chicory, which is a root. This is how I make my coffee. I don't have a coffee maker, and I just go slow because this, this is me.
12: We are operating by a scattered-site um, rental assistance model, meaning that we don't have a separate house to really um, uh, house um, the survivors for a longer period, one year or two. But instead, we help them to kind of develop, um, looking for the private housing uh, for their uh, choices. <coughs>
13: With the lease being signed by them and their name being on the lease solely, uh, that gives them at least that history, that solid history of a good renter.
11: Uh, this is my book called Quran. This is from Mariama. From that time, since now I'm reading from this. That's my prayer mats, Mariama gave me.
12: We recognize that finding a housing and move it move the client out, it wasn't enough. We notice um, survivors being controlled by the their uh, intimate partners uh, financially, including not allowing them to go out to work.
11: All the money, all the cards, credit card, debit card, everything is his. I can't have bank account. I can't have cash money with me. Nothing.
13: Economic empowerment includes income, career, knowing how to deal with finance, education.
11: They provided me classes to uh, to teach me financial literacy. I requested that. I knew more about uh, like budgeting, saving, credit cards. How. What is credit score? All this was new for me.
5: gửi cho em những cái công việc giúp em có những cái mà những cái mà để mà cho em có I sell all these products. Facebook, this one is a lipstick. This one is a cooling stick Fight and eyes. Yeah, it's loaded like this. Usually every Monday I stay, I sit here and then set up where I can live stream. To stay on my
13: yeah. Transitional housing program is not just finding a place for a client for a couple of years, for one year or two. We want to have a way with them to build the way to stability.
11: My advocates helped me to enroll in GED classes, and I did enroll, and actually I'm almost done with it.
10: I'm going to Cal State East Bay um, online. I'm studying medical billing and coding. This is what I want to do. And now that I'm in this position, AWS has helped me to get to where I can actually study.
11: All this education, school, college, is going to help me to have a decent job, and it's going to provide for me and my baby.
9: We're not watching the whole thing. We're gonna stop it there. But um, there's so much sweetness and cuteness in the rest of this video, showing after years of work with someone what is really possible. And you know, we broke all the rules, like three to five-minute video. People's extension, people's attention spans only go for three minutes. But um, their stories—you can't, you can't cover an ounce of the struggle. Um, in, in three minutes or even in this 10-minute video. But I just want to close with the, the message that a lot of our, for example, we have one federal grant that is for transitional housing. Almost every client, we worked with 151 last year, um, needs housing. We can serve similar to what's been said already, like six with this grant, you know, seven with this grant. It's just like piecemeal putting it together. You're not allowed to buy furniture. You're not allowed to buy a lamp. They have no bedding. You get this apartment that's right by BART, that's right by the train. Stuff is ringing. People's options are limited, and we do everything that we can to try to find something that they can actually stick with so those kids don't have to go back into shelter, back into a new apartment, back into living every day with their parent under an incredible degree of stress and overwhelm. We're doing that with them, and, and they're going into this bare apartment in a neighborhood they don't know with nothing. And we're not allowed to spend any of our funds on those things that are purely basic, like a freaking bed and a bed for a little person, a little kid. Um, Our state money that is for housing is 100% VOCA, domestic violence housing first, domestic violence transitional housing, 100% VOCA facing like 40% cuts next year. It's literally impossible for us to run the program with the federal VOCA cuts coming down. And then our local money, thank God, we're part of the Continuum of Care. We're the first domestic violence rapid rehousing project in San Francisco's Continuum of Care. And change in accessibility, it's slow. We work really hard together as a team in the city. And two of those three clients, came in with almost no English. What they're able to say here was absolutely not in place when we started working with them. They're dealing with the rest of life. So the client, like, life doesn't stop for being DV and homeless. Everything else happens. People have medical emergencies. They're only eligible for emergency Medicare. People have have lost their children to gun violence while they're leaving domestic violence and they're homeless. And the advocates are supporting that entire experience. And then I have to be there being like, nope, you can't buy that, nope, you can't, Nope, we can't do this, no, nope, we can't, just this series of no's that really breaks our heart. It breaks the advocate's heart. It makes my retention of the advocate's hard because their heart is being broken because they cannot get people what they need. So what we need is support to heal all the hearts so that people can enjoy their coffee and help their kid learn how to write in cursive as if anybody can write in cursive anymore. But he talks about that later in the video, so I had to bring it up. Thank you.
7: I'll jump in to thank Orchid. Thank all of you. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We have a little uh, draft calendar. New events are coming in every day, but I'd like to leave this with Laura and Ivy and thank them for their help, Uh, and thank you so much. Thank thank you for the work that you're doing. You're truly saving lives and helping the next generation, so thank you so much.
0: Thank you. you. Any
7: questions? Uh,
0: We'll uh, we'll actually go through the next uh, presentation, and then we'll come back to the committee questions.
9: (laughs) And if possible, if I can ask, when everything's done today, can you delete the video off of the computer? Thank you.
0: Thank you you so much. Wow, that was really powerful. Thank you, both of you. Um, So now we'll have our presentation by Erica Kirsch from Compass Family Services. Welcome, Erica. Good
14: morning, everyone. I'm Erica Kish. I'm the CEO of Compass Family Services. Um, I've been doing this work at Compass for 29 years. I'm very old. Um, and a few years more than that, addressing this issue in this community. Um, Hope is going to run slides for me because I have a hard time chewing gum and walking and doing anything else at the same time. So I just want to acknowledge how heavy that last presentation was and you know just. Think for a second about like how important all the work that's being discussed in this room is this morning. So I'm here to talk to you about homeless, family homelessness, unhoused families, and the work that we're doing um, at Compass. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to shine the spotlight on family homelessness, which you know, with all the attention to homelessness in San Francisco, uh, you know, is often the less visible population. And I'm going to start with some demographic information about the families we're seeing at Compass and the changing trends we're witnessing. And then we'll move on to a review of Compass's program continuum, which I'll try to do quickly, and then share some thoughts about program gaps and needed system fixes. So, okay, So I don't think it will be a surprise to any of us that we're seeing a clear year over year increases in the number of homeless families turning to the emergency rep- response system for help. Compass served 7% more families in FY23 than we did in FY22. And our number was already way, way up in FY21-22 because that was COVID, and you know, the the growth was extraordinarily in families coming to our doors. Um, It's also striking that 41% of the families uh, coming to us for services in FY23 were new to Compass. Next slide, please. Um, So that huge increase is reflected here. 54% increase in families served over the past two and a half years. 54%. Um, It's pretty staggering. Um, and some of the increases in who we served had to do with new programming that Compass brought online thanks to Prop C funding finally rolling out. But really, the impact of Prop C funding um, can be seen more in kind of later part of 2023, just as those programs came online. So the 54% is more just really about the increased need, and so many four more families hit hard. By COVID, and still right now struggling to recover. You know, the world thinks of COVID as being over, um, but you know our families um, are still really struggling to recover. Next slide. Okay, so what has remained more consistent across our programs, and then is the number of families and and the family coordinated entry system is the disproportionate number of families led by households who identify as women. So eighty nine percent of the households identify as women-led. Next slide. Okay. Another distressing consistency, the racial disproportionality of families experiencing homelessness as compared to their house peers we all know is super stark. Um, And we all know that homelessness remains a racial justice issue. So you'll see that the largest racial ethnic group of families served at Compass are families that identify as Hispanic and or Latinx. That's 36.5%, followed by 32.4% of families that are black or African-American. Okay. Um, A final really striking note on trends, Um, we have seen a full 100% increase in families enrolled in COMPASS programs who speak Spanish as a primary language. So um, at present, for the safety of our clients, we don't ask about documentation status. And it's not accurate or appropriate to conflate Spanish as a primary language metrics with a family's documentation status. With that said, we do internal point of time counts at Compass, where case managers reflect the number of, on their caseloads who are not in the position to, re, to pursue um, legal income. And the number is huge, huge. So. I really, if anything, want to hammer home today that we're seeing a staggering number of undocumented families turning to the emergency response system in absolutely dire circumstances and with really insurmountable barriers to exiting homelessness, to meeting basic needs and becoming stable. Next. Okay, so to quickly review the democratic graphic sh- trends, um, what the things that are kind of staying constant, Housing insecurity and family homelessness disproportionately impact BIPOC families. A total of 74.5% of Compass families identify as Black, Indigenous, African-American, American American Indian, Asian, or Hispanic, Latinx, with an additional 15% identifying as multiracial. And homeless families are by far most often headed by single women. And what is changing quickly is the market increase in the number of families coming into the system who are undocumented, have no immigration status, pending immigration status, or temporary status. Our last internal pick count um, in 2021 reflected more than one third of the families we are serving, which is a lot. Um, the number of families we're seeking, who are seeking help is steadily increasing in FY19. Only 902, when I say only, um, in context, were verified homeless and fully assessed at access points. And in fiscal year 23, that number was 1,228. So huge change. Um, And, you know, just want to put a note in there that this is families who are making it to the access point and getting assessed, not necessarily all the families that have need in the city that kind of are discouraged by or you know, aren't going to show up because they're not eligible for uh, coordinated entry services. So just a little bit about COMPASS. Um, our focuses are helping families to secure and maintain safe and stable housing, to achieve economic self-sufficiency, as well as overall well-being for the family unit and for each individual family member. We're all about helping every family at Compass to get a lease and a key and to make, and we, but we also want to make sure that, that housing, in which is usually hard fought, hard to secure, is lasting, and that you know, stability and wellness are also at play. We don't want the children we're serving today to be the homeless adults of tomorrow. So this very busy graphic illustrates our continuum of direct service at Compass. Um, We've grown and grown and grown over the years, kind of trying to adjust to the expanding need. Um, Just to summarize really quickly, um, our access point, uh, the central city access point right down the block right here in the Civic Center, um, sees by far the bulk of the families entering the system. I think it's maybe 70, a little more than 70% of the families um, coming for services. Um, we have a shelter, transitional housing, and various, various pathways for rapid rehousing. Um, C-RENT is our eviction prevention program. We uh, offer aftercare to make sure once families are housed that they stay housed and they keep moving forward. Um, We're one of two family resource centers that targets homeless families specifically, the other being HPP. Uh, We offer workforce services and early childhood education for homeless and at-risk families, among some other services. Um, We have a very robust, um, but never large enough, or robust enough to meet the growing need, behavioral health program um, available to any family coming through Compass programs. And we also provide those services to families in a number of the other family shelters, transitional housing programs, and permanent supportive housing programs in the city. And with Prop C dollars, we've added permanent supportive housing at the Margot for 40 families, um, a hotel voucher program for families unable to access shelter, where families can stay for 14 up to 28 days, and several permanent um, rental subsidy streams, one of which is FlexPool and the other, which is housing, housing ladders. So I was asked to speak about gaps in the family safety net. Um, So mid-range subsidies, um, meaning not permanent but longer than traditional 18 to 24-month rapid rehousing is needed, is crucial, and there's not enough of that. Um, The families we've seen in the last couple of years have competing acute needs that can't be remedied in such a short period. Um, And rapid rehousing um, doesn't work well for single moms, take caregivers, and given the more um, extreme disparities in wealth, the cost of housing, the cost of living in the Bay Area, more subsidies, longer subsidies are needed. Uh, We hate to see families uh, wind up at the end of their subsidy and then have to come back to the shelter system. That's absolutely not what any of us want. Behavioral health, again, um, this is really uh, something that's important to us. Um, Part of our model, we want to make sure that we're helping families to address trauma. And um, our model at Compass has always been therapy on demand. So when a family is in crisis, we want to be able to say, Yes, we can serve you right now, not, you know, we'll put you on a waiting list for six months and give us a call and we'll see if we can help you with something because there's not all that much else available for families um, beyond what we're providing and we do really kind of specialize in serving families with these particular issues but it's an ongoing challenge to meet the demand even when we're leveraging which we have been over the past bunch of years millions of private dollars um, we would be glad to do more and we could do more with more funding and we've got right now you know close to twenty therapists, and clinical interns. So we have a robust program, but the need is, is greater than that. Um, and we also really hope that DPH, HSH, and SFUSD can come together to offer robust technical assistance to family providers so we can maximize the opportunities offered under CalAIM. Again, we want to prevent today's homeless children from being tomorrow's homeless adults. Um, permanent supportive housing—the need is huge—but it seems like the only project in the pipeline is HPP's project, and that's a number of years down the road. Um, you know, City Gardens and the Margot are you know great additions to the system, but much more is needed. I think we all know that. And then transitional housing. Um, it's been years since I have felt like I could even like utter these words without feeling like I'm going to get like pelted with rotten fruit. But um, <laughs> I do believe in transitional housing. Um, you know, when rapid rehousing became the thing, transitional housing became like kind of the bad guy. Uh, we've held on to our program, but it really um, has been diluted in terms of the effectiveness by uh, the tenets of coordinated entry, and that's really been a shame. Um, You know, our experience is that there is uh, a place for coordinated entry in the system. There are sub-sub populations that really benefit from it. And um, coordinated entry is supposed to provide solutions and exits that meet the needs of families, not just one solution that every family has to fit into. So it would be great to be able to re-explore this model without stigma and rotten fruit. Um, Prevention, so upstream interventions cost pennies to the dollar, as we all know, um, and we want to disrupt new entries into the homeless family system. Um, Keeping a family in their unit is much, much more affordable than families becoming homeless. It's less disruptive for the children. We all know about the effects of homelessness and the trauma on all members of the family, children in particular. And now, let's see. Um, So system fixes. Um, Just a few things real quick. Um, So transitional age youth. So we all know that tay headed households have unique needs and challenges. And we're really excited. Compass just received some funding that we applied for uh, to try to uh, more specifically address these unique needs. we 've always served families that are headed by Tay parents, and we 've always known and try to address those particular needs with you know just individualized services, but trying to create something a little more systemic. Um, more coordination between the TAE system and the family system so that those families who are incredibly vulnerable, vulnerable and also just at a point where there's incredible opportunity um, to help them, um, you know they're not falling through the cracks. Um, we need support in crosswalking the youth and family coordinated entry system so that these families get the services and the help they need. I'll mention again undocumented families, um, families that don't have clear pathways to income generation, uh, to access to legal support, being a huge barrier. We actually have a funded compass where um, we're able to, thanks to a very generous private donor, support some of the families we serve with these costs. But the costs are tremendous, they're huge. And, um, you know, families cannot. You know, in the best of cases, uh, you know, afford these services themselves, and these can be just completely life changing. So, um, given the significant size of this subpopulation, we need family system wide technical assistance and coordination to meet legal barriers to economic stability, stronger partnerships and referral pathways between HSA. Um, HSH and the Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs, and sort of what um, Orchid was saying earlier, it's also just for the um, the staff that work with these families, you know, where she was talking about being demoralized by kind of feeling powerless. I, mean, I, I definitely see that in the staff that, you know, at Compass, where it's just what can you do? Families are desperate, you want to help them, and your hands are almost tied, and it's, you know, it doesn't make for, um, Great morale. Um, uh, family coordinated entry. So um, lots of fixes are needed. Um, can't say I'm a huge fan. Um, the system slows down referrals and placements into shelter and housing. Um, defining the size of the population um, as uh, well, what am I trying to say? Does it, I, I do this and this. So the coordinated entry has made it so that. What we're saying, the need is, is determined by the resources we have. So if we have this many resources, we have to redefine the population so that there's this much need when there's really this much need. And that's just been, you know, as someone who's worked in the system before, coordinated entry, which you know we certainly had a lot of issues then. It's so frustrating every day to see that, like, this is how you know what the driver is, Um, and it's it's just I think I think we probably all think ethically wrong. (laughs) Um let's see, finally, sorry. Um, HSH's Home by the Bay strategic plan failed to define metrics of success for addressing family homelessness. Our system hasn't historically invested in family homelessness services commensurate with the size of the population. And there's always some drive toward massive undercounting. Um, massive undercounting. There aren't 209 homeless families in San Francisco. Compass serves 7,000 something, you know, parents and children um, in FY23. The numbers don't add up. We need to be real with the numbers, and we need clear measures of success so that family programs are resourced at the levels needed to meet the growing need. And that's what I got.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Wow. I just want to thank all of our providers that are presented um, here today. Um, So we're now going to go to our committee. Um, I believe Vice Chair D'Antonio, you wanted to kick us off. What's your question?
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for the presentations, everyone. Great job. Um, And yeah, a lot of great data, just heartbreaking. Um, My first questions were for uh, Beverly and Orchid. I was just wondering if Y'all know how many people are turned away from shelter out of the DV system, either annually or monthly?
7: So there have been studies in San Francisco going back many years that say sometimes 75% of people that are trying to get into shelter in San Francisco, domestic violence shelter, uh, are not able to access shelter the day they call. So there's a lot of extenuating circumstances for that, but I also think we should keep in mind that we have roughly 77 beds. Of course, it can grow a little bit. Somebody can put a cot out. But in general, between those three safe domestic violence shelters that we have, we have about 77 beds. And so most people go in to shelter with children, not all, but a lot. And so we're really only looking at 25 to 35 families at any given time in shelter in San Francisco. So I think you're uh, on point asking this. There are certainly needs that are going unmet. I'll turn this over to Orchid as well. Thank you.
9: Yeah, I'll just add that our crisis line turnaway rate doesn't ever have a day of non-activity. I'll just say that.
3: Thank you. Um, actually, I do have one more question for you sure. What um are the most successful um like housing exits types of housing and. If there's not, if there's no, I know there's not necessarily one size fits all, but on average.
9: The most, like a, like an example of a successful? Or just like
3: an exit, like what types of exits, like what types types of of housing? Yeah, like rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing, like do people need like that many services? um, Yeah. Subsidies, yeah. So,
9: so as has been said before, most of our, our clients can't get into permanent supportive housing. Some of them do need it, but can't get into that. Um, Most of our successful situations are through rapid rehousing. That rapid rehousing, though, I have to say is the success that I'm saying isn't just that day when they actually sign their own lease for the first time. But it's that after a year or we try every possible way to get extensions to get it to be two years that they've actually been able to go through an education program, job training, ESL, all of the workshops. Like, without those things, it would be impossible, literally completely impossible. Um, But they go through all of that, and they're actually able to keep that apartment. Keeping that apartment, for most of our clients that are, you know, no credit history or it's been sabotaged and ruined. No rental history. Um you know, first bank account ever. Just just really starting as someone who's not gonna be rented to. Right. Um, um if they can when they can keep that apartment after two years and those kids can stay in that apartment and they have a source of income so that next time they actually could show the stubs. Right. They have no stubs. They have not so, that they could actually get their next apartment without a full time advocate, that's the
0: success. success.
8: Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Um, um, member of Cunningham Denning.
8: Um, I have a question for SFDVC as well as Compass, and it is um, in relation to the, the upswell of individuals coming to California seeking asylum, um, as, a, as someone who works daily in providing direct services, I can definitely attest to how those particular situations do exhaust our budget at our, at our agency. What, is that something that your agencies are also seeing in regards to serving that particular population? So sorry.
9: Yeah, we definitely serve people seek, seeking asylum, and COVID only made it worse in terms of the delays on people's hearings. It was unspeakable. And clearly, as you know, they're ineligible for everything. For everything. Yeah. Everything during this time as they're getting cancer, as they're going through life, like I was saying before. So we, uh, I feel like you just sort of named an area of people who are unhoused who they're not responding to the surveys they don't show up in the data but they're here they live here they're trying to survive here but they're not counted and they're terrified because when that hearing anyway we know so so that's why one of the things that we're looking at is trying to build more support for people to be able to do their own social enterprise um, to be able to have income safely uh, they're terrified about that safely part. Yeah. And, 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 and a lot of our other clients, like they just don't get hired. They're not going to get hired. We try and try and try. And our advocates were just talking to me about this yesterday. Like Orchid, it's hopeless. Nobody will hire her. If she's in cop, like she's like covered head to toe. Uh, Nobody will hire her. It doesn't, it's like, the 70s in central Pennsylvania for my mom. Nobody will hire you. So um, so basically, that's why we need diverse resources, because they're ineligible for everything. Yeah. And that's why we need community integration, so that other community can step in and help, because it's completely impossible.
8: So... I'm also curious about this because this is something I've been I'm looking into on behalf of my own agency, like figuring out a way to possibly, one of the reasons why this issue is becoming exacerbated is because people are not receiving their asylum, or it's taking years years for them to get there to have these asylum hearings. And during this time, they're relying on social services that they are you know, the city of San Francisco is a sanctuary city. So of course, it is gonna be a beacon for those particular types of situations. Because of that, it also creates, you know, this situation that we're all experiencing currently, especially around our budgets. Um, so is there is there like a plan or maybe a thought process in place in regards to possibly I don't know, um, meeting with INS or some, someone in immigration that can help with this particular situation, like get this process kind of sped out. I know it's probably impossible, but it's, I know that one of the reasons why this situation is becoming as it is is because we have a large population of people that is only growing that are in need of these social services that we, because we're human beings, are going to provide to them, but we're only given, as I yeah. saying early, this much money, and we have to do this many things, yeah. but that amount of money. I just wanted to know what your idea was around that.
9: Honestly, we have a support group for asylees who are getting asylum for their queer identity here in the U.S., and they get resettled here to San Francisco, because San Francisco is so many things yeah. to so many people and represents hope in a lot of ways for people seeking asylum for, you know. So, like, that doesn't pay rent, but there's so little anything for them that honestly just having a support group and people can talk about the domestic violence going on that affects their asylum application and they're staying because of the asylum application and la, la, la from...
8: Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that response. So, no, there's
0: no financial plan.
8: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Member Cunningham. Any, any other questions from committee before we go to public comment?
3: I do have a question for the family providers for Erica, yeah, or Hope, either one. No, my question was around transitional housing and coordinated entry. Different. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess it kind of has to do with everybody because it's not like there's only transitional housing for families. I know um, for youth as well, but um, yeah, I guess I guess kind of what I'm thinking about, and I haven't fully thought this through, but um, you were saying how you know coordinated entry, before transitional housing, before coordinated entry, the exits out of transitional housing were very different, right, now than they are with coordinated entry, because basically you wouldn't be counted as unsheltered anymore. You wouldn't get a priority to exit out of transitional housing. Is that correct or no?
14: Um, it's more specific to our program, which we opened in 1995 and it was focused on workforce. So the idea was that families could go to school um, or do a training program. Is this Clara House? Sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah rent free um, or you know, paying 30% of their income um, and with on site, intensive on site services, including all day childcare after school, um, and then move into a living wage career or be on the path for that. Um, and then coordinated entry has never recognized or maybe understood or isn't interested in the difference between shelter and transitional housing. So basically, um, they're kind of the same thing, only, um, you know, sort of longer stays, although the stays are kind of undefined, you know, since COVID in shelter. So it's, we're doing the best we can to kind of preserve the positive things that our model provided, but it's really tricky because, um, there's no recognition of a difference between transi- transitional housing and shelter. But we really found that you know, for families that were um, reunifying with their children, for families that were recovering from violence, for families that were recovering from addiction, um, it really was a great way to just kind of decompress, to have intensive support on site for a period of time. Um, while working toward a living wage career so would
3: you like to see more transitional housing for families like as is the system that exists or only if there was to be a sort of a change of really distinguishing transitional housing from shelter within coordinated entry
14: i think there's a place for more transitional housing there was more and then when coordinated entry came along you know ours became an Endangered species. Um, you know, Hamilton still has a program, but it's different right. than ours. Um, uh, so I think there is a place for more. And I just think the system doesn't have enough varied options for different family needs. You know, not everybody should just shoot into rapid rehousing, it doesn't work for right. every family.
3: Okay, thank you so much.
14: Thanks, Julia
0: yes of course yeah
3: please Uh, yeah also you system if you guys have any thoughts on transitional housing feel free to step up
9: just to support that that even though you know I talked a lot about rapid rehousing because we've got that set up um, I think that we used to use transitional housing a lot we needed transitional housing and I think that I think that the more you're around and the more you work with different types of families, the more you realize how many systems you need. There will never be one system that is for everybody, ever. And there have to be different different places where people do see that one spark of safety that they'll go to when they would never go to any of the others. And having transitional housing within coordinated entry, having transitional housing outside of coordinated entry, having rapid rehousing within, having rapid rehousing outside, that is more ready for real people and the incredible diversity of the situations that they're living in every day and where they will go and where they won't go um, for help.
4: Thank you so much, Orkin.
0: Thank you so much.
4: Hi, um, I'd like to add to that for transitional housing as being a youth access point coordinated entry for us as I touched on we're not able to make that many referrals to transitional housing to be honest we get about two to four a year out of the number of assessments that we get because the way that coordinated entry works is that the slots are divvied to larger organizations the minute, the smaller organizations that have coordinated entry are given Two slots here and there, two slots here and there. And so it forces organizations such as mine to start thinking, how do we get these transitional housing options available? Do we start thinking of having our own inside our organization? Because for us, with coordinated entry, you're only really matching to the the programs that you have available, Mm -hmm. right? And so there is a need for transitional housing. There is a need for more increased days of rapid rehousing or permanent supportive housing. We get about eight slots every couple months, like maybe two at a time. And so out of the two of a wait list that you have of 868 assessments, who do you prioritize? Mm -hmm. Do you prioritize the one that had their assessment last year and you've been waiting for a PSH slot or the one that has an immediate need with more episodes now of mental health or substance abuse that's like, where do I put them? Shelter's not a good fit. Transitional housing may be a good fit, but we don't have those available. They're very minimal, very scarce for our residents and our clients at like the Lower Polk Tane Navigation Center. We have clients that should probably not even be there. And it forces us to bring more resources in, right? And so by having more resources in, navigation centers end up looking like transitional housing. We don't have a length of time to stay. There's no expiration. There's no time where it's like, okay, you have to leave. Right. And because of that, it starts looking like transitional. But how are we really focusing on their needs, knowing that we're temporary and not really focusing on those transitional needs to be able to go and transition into permanent supportive housing or rapid rehousing and emergency housing vouchers? So for us, the need for transitional is high. (laughs) Please do something about it. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much. Um, This has been an amazing, amazing presentation. Thank you so much to all of our providers for all the work that you do. Um, This is really, really helpful for our work. Um, We're now going to take public comment, and then we need to move to our next item. So, again, thank you for joining. So, Ivy, if you would.
1: Members of the public who wish to provide in-person comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code two six six four two three four zero zero nine seven, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? For the records, there are no phone public comments.
0: Thank you so much, Ivy. All right, so now we have a... um, OVERVIEW AND DISCUSSION OF OPTIONS FOR UNPROGRAMMED FUNDS IN THE OCO YOUTH HOUSING AND FAMILY HOUSING CATEGORIES. WE HAVE DIRECTOR WHITLEY WITH US AND I BELIEVE ALSO DIRECTOR NAGENDRA IS HERE AS WELL. SO I'LL TURN IT OVER TO YOU, DIRECTOR WHITLEY. AND GOOD MORNING.
2: Good morning, Uh, Gigi Whitley, Chief of Administration and Finance for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, and I'm joined by our Deputy Director for Planning, Cynthia Najendra. I'm gonna make my comments brief, but mostly share an update um, of where the um, under 30 housing and family housing fund balances landed, um, so that you can have that as part of your discussion.
11: slide get
2: the slides going Can't work my okay um, so the table you see before you um, provides a summary of the adopted budget and of particular note, Um, you know, the adopted budget last year for for TA housing was almost $31 million. Um, At the end of the fiscal year, there was an additional uh, revenue reduction that the controller's office informed us about in mid to late August. And so what we've done in this slide is Um, adjusted for that revenue decline and given you a view of what would happen if those revenue trends were going to continue over this budget cycle in fiscal year 23-24 as well as next budget cycle. So you're planning with full information. My understanding from the controller's staff is that their office will be back before you sometime in November to present the updated current year numbers. So these are still for planning purposes, but the fiscal year 22, 23 numbers are final actuals. Um, At the end of the year, then, we ended with um, a $6.3 million shortfall that we needed to solve. And that really ate into some of the one-time fund balance that we had set aside for uh, future allocations of the TAY housing funds. There's still an $83 million acquisition budget balance, as well as an 8.1 Um, expenditure reserve, and so that ended the year with about 11.4 million in fund balance. Two million of that, 2.49 million of that was carried forward to um, support this year's plan. I will say we have a number of, we have two home key applications in for acquisitions of new sites where we've also applied for operating dollars. So we're, we're hopeful uh, those decisions and awards haven't been made yet, but we may be able to free up some of the that 2.49 million in operating funds if we were to get a home key award. Um, so that, you know, taking that deficit forward really um, has eaten into some of the unallocated funds you see here. So we're projecting as of now with these preliminary numbers that we would have at least 8.9 million in one time savings and another 7.4 million this year to allocate, approximately 16 million. And then you can see there's some money continuing to allocate. Um, should these revenue you know, numbers stay constant um, next year? Next slide. I'm not gonna go over this slide because it's on our website and you've seen it before, but just a reminder um, what the adopted expenditure plan was. Next slide. Um, I'm gonna shift briefly to talk about the family fund balance. Um, The same trends, uh, we budgeted 38.8 million last year and ended the year with unexpected bad news of 7.9 million reduction that has eaten into our one-time fund balance. We still have a $7.9 million expenditure reserve that allowed us to end the year with about $19.2 million in one-time fund balance. And in order to balance this year's budget, should these revenue trends continue, it's eating into that fund balance. Um, we still have you know, a significant amount of one-time money, um, more than $20 million projected, and then some additional Uh, one-time savings next year. But you can see the trend in the family fund is actually worse than what we see in the TAY fund because we're we're losing room ongoing should these revenue um, trends continue to trend downward. Um, Next slide, again, for your information, it's just a reminder of the final family uh, adopted expenditure plan. I won't walk you through that, but just as a reminder there. And then um, the last two slides, I just wanted to talk a little bit about our Tay acquisition fund balance because it is significant. At year end, we ended in with $83 million. That grew since I believe the last time I presented this to you because we did get um, a significant amount of funding from the state through Home Key. So I think our last estimate was around 67 million. We were able to um, you know accrue funds back. We um, have already spent 2.7 million this year to put a deposit in um, for one of the new sites. Um, Those purchases are working their way through the Board of Supervisors process so that we'll be able to purchase two new sites. We are waiting for those home key awards. That leaves us with $80 million in acquisition funds remaining, Um, about 72 million of that is um, allocated to projects. However, again, if we get those home key awards, that will free up savings in that 72 million. But we, we have enough set aside so that if we aren't able, if we aren't successful in getting those home key funds, we'll still be able to purchase those two buildings as well as the new um, bridge Tay site and complete the rehab um, work at the EULA and Mission Inn, which we acquired previously. That still leaves an unallocated acquisition budget for the committee's discussion of almost 8.5 million. And then final slide, um, just wanted to show you a a little bit of an illustration of what we've been dealing with on the fiscal side. Um, In fiscal year 21-22, the revenues came in 57 million lower than what was budgeted last fiscal year. Um, Like I said, at year end, um, you know, in our March projection, we were balancing around $310 million. Revenue came in 65 million lower than budget, and so you'll you'll see the breakout at the bottom. But for our department specifically, that means 50 million in balancing, really after the budget process. And so, you know, as we've talked with our liaisons, you know, really wanting you to have that context as you're allocating funds to new programs, so we're able to continue support the expenditures already adopted and recommended by the committee. Thank you for your time. Happy to answer any questions. Cynthia is here as well to answer any questions you may have um, on our strategic planning work as it relates to the Tay and family interventions.
0: Thank you so much, Director Whitley. I'm actually gonna turn it now to member Friedenbach to discuss some of our work on looking at the budget.
15: Um, Yes, please, yeah. Um, Thank you so much. Um, So um, we've been, uh, kind of well, a number of things have happened um, since the last meeting, and knowing that there's additional funds, and through so through the Homeless Emergency Service Providers Association, and specifically the Youth Committee and the Family Committee, um, we've been working around trying to come up with some recommendations around one-time funds. Um and then had the um, housing liaison meeting. In addition to that, at Coalition on Homelessness, where I work, we've been, we have a housing justice work group that has about 120 members, about um, regular attendees, about 40 to 50 um, parents, um, mostly African American and Latino, with some service providers um, who also attend. Um, most of them also have lived experience. And so we've been trying to, um, figure out some different proposals, and um, one of the things that um, we presented at the um, housing liaison meeting, or I presented at the housing liaison meeting, um, is um, recommendations around um, how to use the um, funding. Um, at the top of this graph, you can kind of, you can see the numbers we were given last week. Um, the family numbers are the same, but I believe GG the youth numbers changed a little. Um, Oh, no, they haven't changed. Okay. Um, The one time 10.7. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're the same. Never mind. Um, So um, we basically had, um, so I'll talk a little bit about the, so the one time funds just for members of the public. um, It has to be something that can only be spent um, that you know basically one time like it sounds and so it can't be used for something that is in need of ongoing operating and so the kind of examples that you use one time funds for are like acquiring a building although that's kind of hard if you don't have operating costs but if you find operating costs or another thing you can do with those funds are things like um, uh, short term rental subsidies and so there's not like a huge number of options um, but it is funding that we can use. So I think folks and um, a lot of the feedback we got from um, from homeless families, we also have been doing outreach in shelters, um, um, coalition staff going out, um, FAMILIES WITH LIVED EXPERIENCE, TALKING TO OTHER FAMILIES um, IN THE SHELTERS AND GETTING INPUT. AND ONE OF THE INPUT THAT WE'VE BEEN GETTING JUST ACROSS THE BOARD IS THAT THE SHORT-TERM SUBSIDIES JUST ARE NOT WORKING FOR FOLKS AND THAT THEY'D REALLY LIKE TO SEE A LONGER SUBSIDY. AND THIS IS ALSO REFLECTED IN THE NATIONAL CONVERSATIONS AND ALSO REFLECTED IN THE PRESENTATIONS THAT WE'VE SEEN EARLIER. AND um, I THINK IT'S REALLY uh, MUCH MORE Much more of a huge deal here in San Francisco with our high rents Um, are making up that income and taking over (coughs) the rent is just so much more of a struggle um, in a short period of time for um, a lot of parents who are coming from nothing to trying to build Um, and again it's a lot of single parents as was mentioned and so that also you know you're supporting a whole household you need a larger apartment you know all of this basically makes it really tough to be able to increase your income unless you get some kind of education. Educational access, um, be able to access college or other some kind of other certification program. It's very very difficult to be able to um, take over the rent on just a run of the mill service sector job. SO um, that, um, THAT FEEDBACK BASICALLY LED TO, AND I'M FOCUSING ON THE FAMILY STUFF, WE HAVE um, A FAMILY ACQUISITION MONEY IN HERE FOR $1 MILLION. Um, WE'VE HEARD FEEDBACK FROM AT LEAST ONE PROVIDER THAT THAT um, WOULD HELP WITH THE NEW BUILDING AND THERE MAY BE OTHER STUFF. Um, Uh, And then we came up with this idea of a five-year subsidy, um, and um, we're budgeting it at about $40,000 per household um, per year for five years, and that would include support services and rental assistance, Um, so the operating costs, the real estate Um, LIKE HAVING THE STAFFING TO HELP LOCATE PEOPLE WITH THE HOUSING AND THE HOUSING NAVIGATION, THE ONGOING CASE MANAGEMENT, WORKING WITH FAMILIES TO BE ABLE TO ACCESS THOSE EDUCATIONAL PROGRAMS TO BRING UP THEIR INCOME, Um, AND SO IT WOULD BE OVER A FIVE-YEAR PERIOD, um, WITH 25 MILLION WE'D BE ABLE TO SERVE ABOUT 125 FAMILIES, AND SO um, THAT'S THE PROPOSAL THAT WE HAVE ON THE TABLE FOR FAMILIES. And then, um, if we could scroll down a little bit um, for youth, there's a number of ideas there too. They have a little bit more flexibility, so to speak, because there's some money for ongoing. And so, there's an idea um, that um, one of the providers has an idea for a meeting, a, a building that they could acquire, um, have that for youth. That was 33 units, and then um, have the operating costs there, um, which are uh, which are in here. And then, if you scroll down a little. Further and of course they would serve more people if they allowed couples. You know, there's you know, um, and then rapid rehousing um, uh, for um, for Tay. As you heard from the Tay providers, really looking at not um, not as. Um, much of a short-term subsidy but um, a a one-year subsidy but really talking about uh, more of a three-year subsidy Um, one of them is a general subsidy for about 60 youth and then the other one specifically for youth who are experiencing interpersonal violence and we're using that term interpersonal violence because of people's street situations and having a little bit more of a uh, you know a broader thinking about domestic um, and and how that goes but um, it's basically the same idea Um, and so um, that um, that is for 15 um, 15 subsidies there, and then having some ongoing um, additional flexible subsidies, about 50 subsidies there. So these are all um, uh, mostly priced at what we're looking at at the existing kind of OCO models in terms of how we're how we're funding things um, currently. Um, there is kind of a mix between, you know, we sort of landed in the middle on the pricing, and of course, could have more, and then you know more per per household, and then you serve less people or cheaper, and you serve more. And we're, we kind of tried to be in the middle-ish um, in the estimation of the pricing. And so those those were the two um, proposals. And I just want to note that at our liaison meeting, um, uh, we had conversation about HSH is pulling together a. Um, A NEW um, LEADERSHIP FOR YOUTH GROUP INSIDE HSH, AND SO THERE WAS SOME THOUGHT ABOUT BRINGING THE PROPOSAL TO THAT GROUP AND THEN um, KIND OF, YOU KNOW, HAVING SOME ADDITIONAL INPUT uh, to make sure that due diligence, due diligence is done. Um, I know, for at least speaking for myself, I feel like on the family side, we've, since we got so much input from homeless families, I'm feeling really, um, really positive about that. But that was something that um, uh, Director G- uh, Whitley brought um, to the meeting. And so, um, yeah, I'm open up for conversation. I, I think from my perspective, I would love to be able to MAKE A MOTION ON THE FAMILY RECOMMENDATION, JUST TO TRY TO GET IT GOING. AND THIS IS ALSO ALL IN THE CONTEXT, I DIDN'T REALLY START OFF WITH THE CONTEXT, I MENTIONED THAT at THE LAST TIME, BUT, YOU KNOW, WE HAD THIS WHOLE ISSUE AROUND, um, um, IN THE BUDGET PROCESS WITH MONEY BEING TAKEN AWAY FROM HOUSING FOR FAMILIES AND YOUTH, um, TO BE MOVING OVER TO SINGLE ADULTS, AND THEN WE HAD ALL THIS WORK TO TRY TO FIND FUNDING FOR THE SINGLE ADULTS AND THE um, FAMILIES, um, BUT WE REALLY WANT TO, we, WE HAVE, WE ALSO HAVE, YOU KNOW, 120 households and RVs right now that are going to get evicted from the spot that they're at we have all this overwhelming need as you could see from the compass data so there's an urgency to the situation and so we really want to want to get it moving and not and not have the money sitting there or putting it at some kind of risk um, uh, you know frankly because of the broader political environment is not as friendly towards uh, families and youth and so um, that that's kind of kind of the context there. So I'll stop there.
0: <coughs> thank you so much, Member Friedenbach, and just thank you so much as our shelter liaison also serving in our housing liaison role and doubling up. Um, I know we have uh, numerous providers here, so I actually want to open it up for public comment, or if any of our providers uh, want to come up and speak to the proposals um, that Member Friedenbach has laid out. Um, and then we'll come back to committee discussion.
15: Oh, and uh, just one thing is we did not request translation, um, but we do have some Spanish speakers and we do have someone in the audience that can translate. So I just wanted to note that for.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. So if there's any public comment, we'll take that at this time. I think we have in-person public comment. I'm seeing a number of folks getting up, so we'll take the in-person public comment first.
1: Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak.
12: Hi, all, good morning. Hope Kamer, I'm the Director of Policy at Compass Family Services. Um, I just want to affirm that Compass has been in conversation Uh, with Co with other HESPA leaders and we really do think that this investment and sort of protective shell around family investments for mid-range subsidies would really meet a Big unmet need that we're facing. We do just want to caveat that without um, funding from somewhere else for commensurate staffing support. We can't take on 50 more subsidies without Um, money for staffing and physical space and that um, is just something that I think we're all tracking but we really appreciate the, the leadership of you all and endorse this plan, thanks.
16: Hola, mi nombre mi nombre es Ondina Hernández. Soy de Honduras.
17: Hello. Um I, my name is Juana Ramos and I will be translating for her today. Ondina uh, Hernandez. Hi, my name is Odina Hernandez,
16: sí, de
17: I'm from Honduras,
16: I have two children, I have one
17: of, Cin- cinco
16: of cinco, sí.
17: I have one daughter that's five year old and then a two year old daughter.
16: Sí. Yo
17: right now I am currently living in a shelter with my two children. I'm sorry, you guys might see me crying with her, but um, she's a mother in a shelter. She got, she got separated from her kids due to domestic violence. I'm sorry, I'm a very emotional person to, to hear this. So she, um, due to her situation, she got separated from her kids. And now she is currently housed in a shelter and trying to fight back for her kids, but in order to retain that she does need help with housing. Um so in her opinion I felt that so, so she has had
16: help ¿cómo?
17: So, homeless program prenatal, the HPP program has actually helped her get housed to be able to be connected again with her kids. So she could reunite back with her kids. So, for her, she really appreciates the program and the effort and the work that they have put because no mother would like to be separated from their children. <laughs> She's saying it's very difficult to be separated from your kids. On top of that, not having a home, having to stay in a shelter, it's a very bad feeling inside. Going through being homeless, staying in a shelter, plus not having your kids by your side, that's probably like the worst feeling that you can ever feel. Or any mother could feel is to be separated from their kids.
16: She's
17: saying this is why she appreciates all the help that she is getting because without the help that she is receiving, she is alone. She has nobody besides her. It's her and her kids. She doesn't have anybody else here
16: so not is
17: it only affecting her it also has been affecting her to her two year old and her five year old in a drastic way and now she's trying to help them overcome the, all the traumatic events that they had to go through To see their mother suffer from her being separated from her kids, it has affected both parties, her children, her, and it's just something very traumatizing no family would want to go through. And she wants to just say that she wants everyone to support struggling mothers, anybody struggling or going through the same situation as her, that everybody deserves a right to have housing to be able to not be separated from the kids, you know, to be all reunited and not suffer. Thank you. Again, her last thing to say, she just wants to say thank you everybody and for all the support that she has gotten from all the programs that have been very helpful. So thank you a lot to Homeless Prenatal Program too. Shout out to you guys.
8: Thank Thank you.
0: Um, um, Ms. I just want to uh, pause really quick because we're about to lose quorum and I know that this vote is very important for today so I just want to ask my colleagues if we want to move the family proposal at this time. I, it seems to me that there's uh, support from the community for this and I don't want to miss the opportunity to vote. Well, we're about to lose quorum. I think you have we we'll have
17: just one more person and or two okay. and that's it. We have to hear public comment before we vote on
1: it.
0: Okay. So, I don't know. so but just I want to talk to Yeah, is that okay for folks? I mean, cuz this is all the legit. So, Yeah, it's but this is important. So, um So um, if folks would agree, if there's no additional public comment, just so the committee does not lose quorum, um, it seems that we have agreement. So um, we're going to move forward. Um, So, Member Friedenbach.
15: Okay. Um, Thanks, everyone. Um, Sorry about that. Um, And we do have one caller, it looks like, online. Oh,
0: we have one caller online. So let's take that. And I know we're going to, yeah, we have a hard stop for one of our members at 1130. So... A little tricky logistics here, y'all. Okay, so we'll take the online caller and move to the motion.
1: Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2664-234-0097, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? There's one caller.
18: Hello. Uh, my name is Francisco Costa and I was watching a program on the TV and then suddenly it got disrupted with something an opening of some housing by the mayor this is utter nonsense utter nonsense I but sorry. because i'm I on the know. land phone so, no. i kind of uh, just stayed and now your I've your done program done. has come back done. on so i want to say this no, say very this, is this has to be
1: um i'm you sorry God, this has to be course. regarding the public okay, i mean the previous Agenda item? Is this regarding the agenda item? Yes, just I'm cause...
18: going to speak to the agenda item now, please. I know very much, I know uh, I'm pretty deep in this situation. So we need to form a task force for the children and the women. A task force. No, no woman should be sleeping with two children, three children in navigation centers. No. That if y'all can't do our job. Then, you then step off this uh, out-city, our home oversight committee. This is ridiculous that our women have to suffer in navigation centers, and they wake, up, wake them up early in the morning and tell them to leave the navigation centers. I'm getting a lot of reports about this. And I also want you all to follow up that when you have your program, there should be no interruption.
8: I'LL FOLLOW UP
0: ON IT TOO. THANK YOU VERY MUCH. THANK YOU. you. ALL RIGHT, THANK YOU SO MUCH, uh, ALL OF OUR PUBLIC COMMENTERS. Um, SO I'M GOING TO GO BACK TO MEMBER Friedenbach.
15: YEAH, SO um, I'D LIKE TO MAKE A MOTION TO um, RECOMMEND THAT THE CITY URGENTLY USE $1 MILLION IN UNUSED FAMILY HOUSING ACQUISITION DOLLARS. Um, for family housing and $25 million in unused family acquisition and one time funding to fund 125 five year homeless family housing subsidies with support services. Uh, is, there a, is there a
0: second? Thank you, Member Friedenbach.
8: I would like to second that.
0: All
15: right, so the move by Member Friedenbach,
0: seconded by Member Cunningham Denning. Is there any further committee discussion? All right, so Ivy will take the roll.
1: Member Cunningham Denning? Yes. Vice Chair Antonio? Yes. Member Friedenbach? Yes. Member Preston? Yes. Chair Williams?
0: Yes. So The motion passes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for joining.
14: <laughs>
0: Tearing up over here. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, um, for item number six. I believe we can table that for our next meeting. Um, at this time, we just need a motion to adjourn.
3: Motion to adjourn.
0: Second. All right, so it's been moved by Vice Chair D'Antonio, seconded by um, Member Walton, or not Walton. Member Preston, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And uh, we'll do a vote on uh, adjournment, sorry.
1: Member Cunningham-Denning? Yes. Vice Chair D'Antonio? Yes. Member Friedenbach? Yes. Member Preston? Yes. Chair Williams?
0: Yes, so we are now adjourned. It is 11.35 a.m. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Thank you. Thank you.